Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there, and there's Jerry over there, and we have a special visitor today, Chuck, Jerry's Miso Soup. Is that what that is? Yeah. She's the lump shaking of tofu. her head now. You lie, Jerry. That is miso soup. I don't care what Jerry says. It's miso soup. Chuck is getting up to sniff it. Uh, one of his beard hairs has dropped into Jerry's soup. Jerry's miso soup. It smells like armpits. <laughs> it's. I don't know what that is because miso soup smells good. I don't think that's miso. Oh, let me miso check. is generally cloudier. Now Josh is smelling. It smells like miso soup mixed with hospital corridor. If you were smelling, why did the soup ripple under your nose as if you were <laughs> blowing out? <laughs> it's so gross. Did not see this intro coming, Chuck. Oh, goodness. So you feeling okay? Uh, yeah. Okay. A little unwieldy lately. This is going to be good. This is a really interesting one that a lot of people I think don't know about. I didn't know much about this. And I think I came across an article just randomly somewhere, and I was yeah. like, human zoos, what is that? And then I was like, oh, uh, Yeah, oh. It's, it's like if uh, you went to an Epcot exhibit right. where they were showing like, hey, this is what this interesting uh, tribe is like in this part of the world. Okay, so, so far, kind of Epcot-y. <laughs> Let's say Scandinavians. That all depends on your approach, you know, as long as it's not like, look at this weird tribe. Right. And, and it's like, look at this interesting thing. Right. Look at this weird tribe and maybe like throw money and bananas at them to get them to dance for you. Well, we didn't get to that part. It's like if Epcot used humans instead of, you know, statues. Sure. <laughs> and they do use some humans to an extent. You could actually kind of weirdly trace a line between Epcot's like around the world thing and this. I don't know what that is. So, you know, the big dome mm -hmm. at Epcot, the geodesic dome? Sure. If you go behind that, there's a bunch of different countries. Oh, really? I went to Epcot when I was like 12. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. There's maybe a dozen countries, maybe 10. Okay. And it's staffed with people dressed like people from those countries. Oh, sure. But they are from those countries, right? Uh, that I would was my guess understanding. A lot of them are, if not all. I sure. I think that's the deal. Like, okay. if you're Sweden, you're Swedish. Okay. And you're coming out like saying, hey, I'm from Sweden. How can mm -hmm. I help you today? Have some food. Basically, the whole point is to go eat. Sure. But they're, they're people kind of bringing their culture forth to, to be um, enjoyed and, um, and to captivate the people who are at Epcot, right? Yeah, there's, there's a right way to do that. There is. The human zoos were the exact wrong way to do this. <laughs> yeah. And not only w was it the wrong way to do it, they were done for all the wrong reasons, too. Yeah. I mean, I, I, was, I wasn't trying to defend this at all when I was researching it. But I did think about the time period and, like, a Westerner's inherent fascination with other parts of the world. Right. Which, at its base, is like, that's fine. Well, it's okay to be fascinated with another part of the world. Totally. But not like, you know, look at how weird that person is who is different than me. Right. Let's make fun of them because they, you know, we'll call them more primitive than we are. Right. Or are 
inherently inferior to our race, yeah. which is another um, prevailing idea. And the the I, the whole the premise of this Chuck started with, like you said, just pure curiosity. It was you know Europeans traveling around the world to new areas and were encountering people that they'd never encountered before. Yeah, and there were a there was a thread of people who were exploring. And like saying, hey, you want to come back to England with me or to France with me or to the Netherlands with me? Um, I can actually introduce you to the king. And the person would hop along on board and they would go back and they, they would be gawked at and, and everything. But they were treated as an individual. They had an identity. They were a person. Even though they were different and an other, they, they, they still had some sort of agency. That was step one. Mm-hmm. That didn't last very long. Well, no, because as we saw, there was a fine line between you can go meet the king and you can be the king's pet. Basically, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So step two was really supported by this whole thing that happened in about the 1800s, the early, early, the first half of the 1800s, I gather, something called like um, biological anthropology. And it basically is that thing that I said about the hierarchy of races where one race is superior to another that's inferior. Yeah. And that, you know, there's a spectrum of human beings and um, on the one end are white Europeans, uh, which under this this idea, this auspice was the pinnacle of of humanity. And on the other end, it just kept going and going until you basically reached um, other primates like the apes. Right. And all other peoples of the world were on the spectrum, either closer to apes, closer to to white Europeans, but, but really... Nothing compared to white Europeans. Yeah. And so there was this idea that the people around the world were to be studied and analyzed and and um, poked at and prodded and measured in this to support this burgeoning science, right? Yeah, in the name of like study by scientists supposedly, but as far as the general public was concerned, something to do on the weekend. Well, that was stage three. Yeah. Stage three is when the public is finally brought in fully, and that's when the human zoos really come in. And that was the peak of colonialism. You remember our Druids episode? It's just dropped today. So do you remember we talked about how, like, Caesar and some of these other conquering Romans were, like, basically writing propaganda about the Druids? They committed human sacrifice and cannibalism and all that. So they needed to be civilized by the Romans. This is the same exact thing, except it was, you know, 19th and 20th century Europeans who were showing their people back home, look at how uncivilized these people are. Um, we need to civilize them. This is It's good that we are colonizing the rest of the world. Yeah, and obviously um, this happened in Europe. It happened in the United States, in North America, um, in France in the 1800s, late 1800s. There was a, a place, it was an agricultural site, um, and this was sort of like that Epcotty idea, which was basically like, let's throw something called the Paris Colonial Exposition, and let's recreate these uh, in, indigenous villages uh, from the colonies. That's always in the background. Sure. Uh, you know, people can't forget that. Right. Because it's not Epcot. It's like, these are places we have conquered, basically. Right. Um, and see what life was like there. So th- they would recreate this with human, live human beings. Um, not quite human zoos at this point, but more like acting out 
like what they did, uh, you know, wherever they were from. But also and, really playing it up to, oh, sure. to, to the point where it was just totally artificial. Yeah, well, yeah, that might speak more to just all art back then. Yeah, there but wasn't I, a lot of subtlety in right, but, <laughs> performance. But if you're also, if you're saying, look at how uncivilized these oh, people sure. are, and then turning around to the people and be like, really kind of like play up the, the shouting thing. Oh, yeah, of course. You know? Well, they wanted to sell tickets. Yeah, or at it, least drive people, you know, drive people's attention there. Right. I don't know if they were selling tickets. Yes. To this one specifically. I believe they were. To the Paris Colonial. Mm -hmm. um, so the other thing you have to remember is they weren't just sort of like uh, – it was sort of like they were carnies. They weren't treated well. They had terrible living conditions. Right. They would get sick. They would get uh, disease. They would be left in the cold. And if they died, they would be buried in a mass grave rather unceremoniously. Yeah, so that's another thing like, okay, so the human zoos are horrific enough, just the idea that that they put on these things. And then even worse than that, that people came to see and like throw money and bananas at people and like mock them and jeer at them. Um, that's bad enough. But then the idea that these people lost their lives as a result of coming over to Europe to put on these performances or whatever, and were just buried in unmarked graves, that just takes it down just the darkest path oh, yeah. there is, you know, like that, that you go to Belgium to, to be in this exhibition and end up buried in an unmarked grave. You lost your life. Because you went to a place you otherwise wouldn't have gone had Belgium not colonized Congo, you know, in, in 1876. Right. Yeah. I mean, Belgium, we can get into that a little bit. What was their exhibit called? Congo-Rama? Well, that was the last one of all of them, but sure. Yeah. I mean, the first one that we were just talking about was France. Belgium, uh, mm -hmm. like I said, it was going on all, all over the place. And they had Congo-Rama spelled with a K even. Well, I think that's Belgian. Is it? I think so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> or maybe they're just trying to sell more tickets. Um, who knows? Uh, these were men, women, and children, once again, put in these basically shows that show uh, what their daily life was like, like mm -hmm. these living exhibits where white Europeans uh, would be behind a fence that was always important. There was that always huge. a fence there yeah. to uh, sort of trump up the idea that, like, beware of what you're close to. Not just that, Chuck, it also reinforces a sense of separateness and otherness, too. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's no mingling. You weren't meeting the people, like, where you just didn't walk up to somebody and, like, introduce yourself sure. to, to the person who was putting on the performance. There wasn't any co-mingling. It was no. a fence separated you from them. Yes. And you were there to observe and watch them, and they were there to perform for you. Yeah. And this, uh, jumping back to 1897, uh, King Leopold II brought over 267 uh, Congolese men, women, and children to Brussels. Uh, and this was not even for the Congorama exhibit. This was for his own palace, basically. Yeah. Saying, like, put them in canoes and lakes and put them over here in the fields. And I just want sort of like this stuff going on all over the place. Yeah, he he made it like a diversion. So this is a big deal for the Congo. And King Leopold also was uh, just a straight-up villain. If you are... Um, fascinated by this kind of stuff and horrified by it, you should go check out Behind the Bastards by our colleague Robert Evans. Yeah, great show. He's done some work on King Leopold II himself. Mm -hmm. But so Belgium gets the Congo 
during this 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 um, conference in Berlin in the 1870s, where basically Europe divided up Africa and said, this is our colony, that's your colony, that's your colony. And the Congo went to Belgium. And Belgium is like this little tiny country. And the Congo is something like 60 or 80 times the size of Belgium. But Belgium went there and just ran roughshod over the people who were living there to exploit it um, for its rubber and to make money off of this this possession that it now had. But part of this also was for the king to show these people belong to us. I'm going to have some come live in this in their primitive ways on the royal grounds. And all Belgians are welcome to come see our new possessions. And they did. Like more than a quarter of Belgian residents, citizens came to see this this display the king put on. Yeah, and this was in 1897, but Belgium, like they had one of the last ones, like you said, in 1958 at the World's Fair in Brussels, there was a Congolese village there. And uh, I believe they had almost 600 people. Um, they were paid. And a lot of people will point to that and say, like, they didn't have to be there. They <clears> could <throat> leave. They were paid. Right. But that sort of, I don't know, that's a bit of a whitewashing, I think. So that's Because a, a lot of them died as well yeah. because of the cold summer. And I think that's really important, though, to bring up, Chuck. Like, if you read a lot of a lot of stuff on this, like, it's just like these people were victims and, and nothing more. Um, and that removes a lot of agency from a lot of the people who went there to make money um, off of the the Westerners who were going to come gawk at them or whatever. Right. And they went back home and they took their money with them. Um, there was there were people who were straight up like victims, who were straight up captives, who were brought to, you know, Europe and America Virtually against their will, yeah, or we'll, we'll talk about them, or they were um, they were tricked or fooled into sure. signing contracts, whatever. But there were a lot of people who came on their own accord and did it because they wanted to, because say they wanted to make money or whatever. And you have to like the whole thing's more complex than that, and you have to recognize that fact so that the people do have agency still, the agency that they did have. But at the same time, you can't point to it and be like, see, that justifies everything the white Europeans did, because it really justifies basically nothing. Well, yeah, and they talk about after 1958, that was like kind of the last, um, well, we'll talk about some sort of modern versions of this, but... Like Epcot. <laughs> no, no. We, we love our friends at Disney. I love that. We love our Imagineer friends. Isn't that what they're called? Yeah, some Imagineers. Of them. Sure. Oh, you got to earn that rank? I think it's a specific kind of job at Disney. Oh, okay. I think. Um, I think you really know this, but you'd have to kill me if you really <laughs> divulged. <laughs> You've got the insider secrets. Um, so yeah, this is one of the last ones. And they said that the advent of movies and motion pictures is what really stopped it. Because it's not like, it's not like they said, we just shouldn't do this anymore. Right. They were just like, well, now we're just going to make degrading racist films portraying these people. Yeah, like 10 <laughs> years later. And have and be have a lot widespread, uh, more widespread release. What was that first documentary called? Like Mondo Kane or something like that? Uh, yeah. I've never known how to pronounce it, but it was like Mondo basically. Mondo Kane, I don't know yeah, if that's right or that's not. That's how it's spelled. Yeah. But it was like the predecessor to things like Faces of Death or whatever. And it was just, they just took their their camera and went around the world and looked at how savage and weird other people were who played up everything for the camera and yeah. just focused on weird rituals and stuff like that. But it was the exact same thing. It was a total extension and outgrowth of human zoos. Yeah, and this was this isn't us saying weird. 
Just no, want to clear that up. This surely is, this was there. Across, right? I think so, but we just got to be careful. It's true. You want to take a break? Yeah, man. Let's take a break. And uh, you want to come back and talk about Oda Benga after that? Yep. All right. All right, so I feel like we've kind of given like a a good overview of human zoos, right? Like basically from the last quarter of the 19th century up to the middle of the 20th century, they had their heyday and then just became more more and more tasteless to Westerners over time as it became obvious like what was really going on. Um, But there's one guy who kind of like had the most tragic life I've ever encountered ever. And his name was Otabanga. Yeah, who was the kid kept in a box? Uh, there have been multiple kids kept in a for box. Experience, for that experiment. It was like his father too, wasn't it? I don't, oh, the Skinner kids? I think so. Like these are the two people that come to mind when I think of like worst human existence. This is depressing. It is. <laughs> so Otabanga was um, – he was 103 pounds. He was 4 foot 11. Um he was this this when you referenced before the break about people that were literally sort of captured and brought over. Uh-huh. He fits that bill for sure. Uh, he was brought over to the United States by a man named Samuel Verner uh, from South Carolina, uh, proud Gamecock. Uh, he was an African missionary and was commissioned by the St. Louis World's Fair, uh, which was what nineteen oh four. So before that, they said, "Hey, why don't you go over there and?" Bring us back a bunch of pygmies. Yeah. And the, and he's like, all right, I know that we're using that word now, and they probably won't in the future. Right. <laughs> but uh, you shouldn't even, like, say that word anymore. I see it. I've seen it. I've seen both. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen it used like it's just, you know, like calling Native Americans Indians. Like some, some Native Americans are like, that's what we're used to. I've seen the same thing with pygmies as well. Although I've also seen it's extremely derogatory because it was also back in the 19th century used as a term for monkey. Right. So like if you're calling a, 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 an African um, Congolese tribes person a, a pygmy at the time you were calling him a monkey so yeah i could see how that would be extremely derogatory too well this is certainly the language they used back then and they told him to go over there and he was like great he got uh letters from the u.s secretary of state the president of the american anthropological association Mm -hmm. the governor of missouri (laughs) that'll open some doors and uh the belgian secretary of state uh great name chevalier Cuvalier, because yeah. um, at the time, Congo was still under the control of Belgium. Right. And they were like, yeah, go get, go round up some people and let's bring them back for the World's Fair. And one of the gentlemen they brought back was Otabenga. Yeah. So I want to give a little more background on Otabenga because the fact that he was brought back to, to be in a human zoo is pretty, it's bad enough. Like that's a, that's a really dark chapter of anybody's life. Yeah. I, like everything about his life leading up to that point, predicted that this was going to happen. Yeah. Um, when he was a, a little kid, he was born into a tribe, uh, the Mbuti uh, tribe in Congo in about 1883. And uh, one day he went off on an elephant hunt 
and came back and his entire family and village had been slaughtered by the Belgians. Yeah. Because remember we said the the Belgians like came to Congo and just overran the place oh, yeah. for rubber production. Well, the king held a um, private army called the Force Publique and they enforced rubber quotas. So if your village didn't meet its, you know, rubber quotas for the day or the month or the week or whatever, the Force Publique might come in and kill everyone or they might hold like some public amputations to make an example of somebody. Yeah. Um or do basically any horrible thing you can do to another human being all to keep people in line and to keep the rubber flowing for the king's coffers, right? This happened to Oda Benga's family. So he finds himself a um, little 100-pound, like less than five-foot-tall Oda Benga, um, basically wandering the Congo alone. Yeah. And uh, he was in short order captured by by slave traders who enslaved him and sold him to a labor camp. Yeah. his uh, If you see pictures of him, he has these uh, fangs for teeth. His teeth were filed, uh, filed down mm-hmm. per the, you know, Congolese um, customs and traditions. Right. So uh, at first I thought that the Americans did that, but yeah. he had already did that. But they they were like, oh, yeah, this like plays into our narrative perfectly. This guy's going to sell so many tickets. Yeah. So they, they trot him out at the St. Louis World's Fair. Um, but that's not where his story ends because he went from there to the Bronx Zoo in New York. Um on display in a literal cage uh, with animals, with with chimpanzees sometimes. And, and orangutans, I think, was his, his most frequent companion. Yeah, and it's really, I mean, just devastating. Like, people would poke him and prod him and throw bananas at him. And the New York Times wrote about, I mean, I think their, herald, uh, their headline was, Bushman shares a cage with Bronx Park apes. Um, and the New York Times was just... It's not like they were writing an article of outrage. No. They were saying, like, come check this out. They were actually responding to the outrage. So in very short order, um, the uh, Colored Ministers Convention is what it was called. Um, the Some of the black ministers around New York got together and were like, dude— um, this has to end immediately. We yeah. like the, w- there's a black guy in a zoo, and he's being he's being held in a cage on public display with a monkey. Yeah, and this is like forty something years after the end of slavery. Right. So, um, they banded together and mounted protests, and and eventually, in pretty quick short order, got um Odebenga released to their their custody and care. Um, but the New York Times like published editorials, at least one of them saying like, what's all the hubbub about? Like yeah. the guys on the low end of the spectrum, you know, um, as far as this hierarchy of races is concerned. So why wouldn't we put him in a cage and study him and observe him? Like, of course there's much science. to be learned. Right. Yeah. So that really kind of gets it at the heart of, of what was driving this at the time, public curiosity, yeah. colonization, but also that completely racist science that would eventually lead to eugenics. Oh, yeah. The eugenics movement in the West and the United States. Yeah, he was turned over to um, one of the leaders of the Colored Baptist Ministers Conference, Reverend James Gordon. Uh, He was a superintendent of the Howard Colored Orphan Asylum in Brooklyn. And his quote is like (laughs) one of the saddest things I've ever read. He said, and this was like, this is how he tried to explain that it was bad. He said, our race, we think, is depressed enough Without exhibiting one of us with the apes, we think we are worthy of being considered human beings with souls. Like the very fact that he had to point out that fundamental 
Like, so obvious thing is just so sad, you know? Sure. I mean, he had to actually make a press statement saying, by the way, he's a human. Right. Like, you understand that, right? Yeah. And we've got enough problems here trying to gain agency in this country. Uh, Can you help us out here? Right. And so they turned him over to him. Uh, He lived the rest of his life. He almost went back to Africa uh, in 1914, but World War One broke out, and that stopped all like passenger ship he actually, travel. He did go back to Africa once. He visited. He wanted to move back in 1914. So this is what I understand: that um, Samuel Werner, the guy who originally negotiated um, for Odebenga to come with him back to the World's Fair, negotiated. Well, he negotiated <laughs> with the slaves traders. Oh, okay. Um, he took Odebenga back to the Congo. Oh, yeah. And Otabenga, from what I read, said, uh, there's no place here for me anymore. Uh, I'll come back with you. Came back to the States and didn't feel any more comfortable or at home in the States. No. And decided he did want to go back to Africa and never made it back that last time. Yeah, thanks to World War I. Um, he lived in Virginia. Uh, he worked at a tobacco company. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently was a good worker and a good employee uh, and killed himself. Yeah. Shot himself in the chest. With a borrowed revolver. Yeah. Somehow borrowed makes it even worse. You know what I mean? <laughs> Does it? Yeah. <laughs> Something about it. I can't quite put my finger on it. Interesting. But um, during this time, so this is, like, think about this. His whole family and village is slaughtered. He's captured and sold into slave labor for years, um, taken away by an anthropologist who trades a pound of salt and a bolt of cloth for him, is forced into a human zoo, is forced into an actual zoo in a monkey cage. Yeah. Um, and then tries to go back home, doesn't feel at home at home, comes back to the States, is just depressed for 10 more years, and then takes his own life with a borrowed revolver. Yeah. That was the life of Oda Benga. For Gordon's part, he tried to help him have a life in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, got him, like, tried to integrate him with American clothing. He got his teeth capped. Um, Sent but, him to school. He was he was educated. Yeah, like, he, he, he wanted to try and fit in, but he 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 was a man without a home, you know? He didn't yeah. fit in anywhere. Yeah. It's really, really sad. Yeah, it's super sad. So he, he really kind of um, demonstrates, like, America's involvement in this. He was, a, he was prominent in the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair, and he was put on display in the Bronx Zoo. And again, like you said, not just the New York Times was, you know, arguing in favor of keeping him in there. Yeah. The fact that he was in there and that zoo attendance doubled over the previous year, the month he was there, and that— um, the the head of the zoological society in New York was like, right, let's bring some monkeys in and put them in with a cage. Yeah. Because apparently he was taken to the Bronx Zoo under the auspices that he would be caring for the animals, not that he was going to be put on display. Right. And once he got there, they're like, mm, we have a different idea for you. Yeah, and he would, I mean, if you read accounts at the time, he would basically just sort of sit there depressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, after a couple of weeks, he got a little, obviously, cagey, um, like experiencing zoocosis like mm-hmm. an animal might. Uh, and then they start letting him out to, like, walk around the forest some. He would shoot his bow and arrow some. Uh-huh. But then when people saw that he was in the forest, they would come after him. Yeah. And he was quickly kind of ushered back into his cage. Right. And, awful. Yeah. So, um, but, yeah, the fact that all this happened really kind of underscores the complicity of everybody alive at the time. I mean, there were people who protest- protested against it. Obviously, the— um, yeah. The, the Colored Baptist Ministers Conference was very vocal about it and secured his release. But they were in the minority. And, like, 
everybody else is just tacitly approving this just by allowing it to go on and not speaking out about it. And some people trace this um, and the fact that human zoos ever existed directly to the undercurrent of racism prevalent in the West today. That like that is the basis of it. It's certainly part of it. So let's let's take another break and we'll come back and we're going to talk about St. Louis. So 1904, we talked a little bit about the St. Louis World's Fair, uh, but they had more living exhibits than uh, just Otabenga. By the way, Otabenga made friends with Geronimo. Did you know that? I did not know that. So the enclosure for the Congolese and the enclosure for the um, Native Americans were beside one another. And Geronimo and Otabenga actually became pretty good friends from hanging out. Is that a silver lining? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, the Philippines uh, play a large part in this. There was a 47-acre area uh, at the St. Louis World's Fair dedicated to more than a 1,000 uh, Filipinos of various tribes, um, specifically this uh, one tribe in the mountains of uh, the Philippines, um, the Ergorot. They, in fact, that means in Tagalog, mountain people. Uh, and they were unique in the world, and then they successfully defended their land against colonization forever. Right. Like they were never, Spain never got to them. That is exceptional. Uh, So ergo, they were, you know, left largely intact culturally. Right. So they had a reputation um, by the time the St. Louis World's Fair, and I believe they were billed as such as being like the most savage tribe in the world, if not just the Philippines. But either way. (laughs) Which really means... White people had not been able to get to them yet, so they're just living their nice, peaceful life right. as they always have. One of the things that was like made, like a lot of hay was made about the Igorots, was that they would eat dog, and that um, they would they in reality the the Igorots did actually eat eat dog, but it was under very specific circumstances. And if a family sacrificed and ate their dog, their family dog, mm-hmm. it was. It was a really bad sign for the family. It told the rest of the village that they were in some dire straits because the family would sacrifice the dog basically like the dog was taking one for the team um, to get this family out of whatever horrible streak of luck or whatever they had going on. And then they would eat the dog and that that ritual process would be done. It was very, very rare. It was basically done as a um, last ditch attempt to reverse fortunes for this family that had fallen on hard times or or was undergoing illness or whatever. But that did happen. It did exist. If you take the Igorot people and put them in the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair, that happens every morning. Every morning. Yeah. A dog would be sacrificed and eaten by the Igorots. Yeah. And not only that, they would take like uh, sacred Igorot uh, rituals um, like crowning a chief, and it's, it, there, it wasn't enough just to put them on display mm-hmm. and have people look at them. Is they took their traditions, their sacred rituals, and used them as as dramatic fodder, basically. Right. So it it's becomes it's like a a theme park schedule mm-hmm. to come see these different quote unquote shows performed, 
that were really these Igorot uh, rituals that they had held dear and were untouched by white man mm-hmm. until this point. Right. And then let's not forget the dogs that were sacrificed like every well, day because sure. of this, right? So here's the other thing too. You might say, well, that's crazy. They used to sacrifice and eat their dogs. That's that's weird. That's other, right? They sacrificed and ate their dogs for every day for the um, satisfaction of white crowds who came to see them. Yeah. So the Igorot um, village was the most um, successful and lucrative exhibit in the entire 1904 World's Fair. Yeah. There were something like 19-something million people who came to St. Louis for the World's Fair that year. 99% of them paid an extra nickel to go see the Igorot village. Everybody went to see the Igorot village. And it's because they wanted to go see someone half-dressed sacrifice a dog and then eat it. That's what people paid to see. Yeah. It had nothing to do with learning about their culture. It had nothing to do with anything. It was about seeing somebody do something horrific and weird for your edification. Yeah, and it was, um, I mean, there are so many people that you could pluck out of history and sort of uh, use as an example, whether it's Oda Binga or this woman, uh, Sarchi Bartman. Yeah, the hot and tot Venus. Yeah, she was South African, and she was born somewhere around 1780, and she was brought to London in the early 1800s and put on display. And she actually had a, a genetic characteristic um, called steatop- <laughs> steatopagia. Is that right? I think so. Close enough. I should tell the audience I'm nodding silently. <laughs> uh, but that is when you have a um, – I mean, the way it's described here medically is a protuberant buttocks and elongated labia. Right. Not like like a, like genetically protuberant buttocks. Yeah. Like like very, very big. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's clear. Um, so they brought her over in London, put her on display. Uh, later on, she went to Paris. Uh, she was described as having the buttocks of a mandrel. Um, and then finally in 2002 – uh, her remains were repatriated to South Africa. Um, and we haven't even mentioned stuff like that they would dress up Otabinga's cage with bones and things. Right. Like anything just to make him seem more primitive. And he was probably like, what are all these bones laying around? More primitive, more scary, more in need of civilization. Like if you think about it, that the um, Igorot exhibit, the Philippines exhibit, and the fact that it was even part of the 1904 World's Fair – it's the same thing. That was a, a colonial possession of America. The United States had gotten into colonizing itself, and the Philippines was one of its colonial possessions. So they were bringing the most savage of the savage from yeah. the Philippines over here to basically justify why America was there, to civilize the Filipinos. Um, and it, was this, it just followed the same script, and apparently it always has. Anytime somebody goes and conquers another, another land— they have to basically demonstrate how what they're doing is actually good for the people they're conquering. Not that they're being exploited and murdered. They're, this is actually good for them. We're going to civilize them. And it continued all the way up until that 1958 World's Fair in Belgium. Well, and some people say it continues today uh, while they're not rounding people up and bringing them somewhere else. Um, you can go to what they call human safaris when they basically will put you on a bus or on a boat and drive you to these uh, tribes people to let you gawk at them from afar. Uh, notably in uh, India's uh, Andaman Island, the Jarawa, Jarawa 
Mm-hmm. Sounds like I'm saying that wrong, but it's totally right. I think he nailed it. Uh, their tribe, basically, there was a video from 2012 that The Guardian dug up that showed these people just, you know, it's kind of the same thing, except they weren't brought over and put in cages, but they're still gawked at. And this was, what, six years ago? Uh, it's just yeah, amazing that this is still going on. I think it is. So the Indian Supreme Court outlawed it, but it's still going on. As of uh, the most recent article I saw was like 2017. So yeah, it's like a human human safari. Yeah. So um, and again, a lot of people directly trace this to the the undercurrents of racism in the West today. Something like 1.4 billion people saw human zoos during their heyday from about 1867 to 1958. 1.4 billion people. That's a lot of people, especially if you're considering that it was really just people in Europe and America. Oh, yeah. Right? Um, And that that had to have had an effect. It clearly had an effect. The fact that people were like, oh, I'm going to go check this out and maybe throw a banana at somebody because I want them to dance. The fact that like that was a mindset clearly is still clinging to the to the international global psyche, at least in the West today. Yeah, I mean, it definitely helped reinforce that uh, idea of Western white superiority. Right. That's still so prevalent. Right. So, uh, you got anything else? Yeah, I mean, we should talk real quick about this protest art. Uh, in Oslo, about four years ago, four or five years ago, there were these uh, artists that did a recreation of, and this was all to bring... Um, to shed light on this, it was protest art, but they were uh, re- recreating the World's Fair of 1914. Um, in this case, there were uh, Senegalese environments that they were recreating. Uh, and it sort of had mixed results. Like some people got it and were on board and saying, yeah, I see what you guys are doing, sort of like this meta art approach. Mm-hmm. But then other people came out um, and said, like, it's an abuse of art and really were highly critical of it. Right. Which is uh, kind it of it didn't it didn't they didn't nail it and it didn't yeah go over very well in all quarters yeah one more thing Chuck that 1958 World's Fair in Belgium mm-hmm. like if if everything we've said up to this point seems like weird and far off and and just past and historical go look up the picture of the little girl from uh, Congo yeah at the 1958 World's Fair um, being fed by uh, an older white woman leaning over a fence to feed her. Yeah. Like, it drives home everything. Everything we just said doesn't even compare to this one picture. It just, it's really tough to look at, but it drives the entire thing home. Yeah. Because it's, it's recent enough that it just feels like, oh, this just happened. Yeah. You know? She's in a little little American dress. Yep. A little white dress. Yeah. Okay, what about now? You got anything else? Nothing else. Well, if you want to know more about human zoos, just start looking them up around the um, the internet and prepare to get bummed out. Uh, and since I said that, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this. We got another elephant adopted in our name. Yeah. Uh, if you remember a few weeks ago, we read one about somebody who adopted an elephant in our name and sent a little stuffed animal. It was very kind. Uh, and this one goes a little something like this. Uh, Hey guys, loyal listener going on about 10 years and I couldn't have been happier than to see your episode on elephants pop up. Uh, One of the best Christmas gifts I ever was given was the gift of fostering an orphan elephant at the David Sheldrick Wildlife Trust in Kenya. They're an incredible organization that rescues, rehabilitates, 
and reintegrates orphan elephants back into the wild in Kenya. And they also fund anti-poaching teams and mobile vet units that respond to and treat injured wild elephants uh, and other wildlife. I'm a wood turner and I donate 20% of all my sales to DSWT and I'm thrilled to be able to foster seven orphans right now. That's awesome. Uh, so as a massive thank you for raising awareness, I sent each of you something from my wood shop and donated what I would have made to the DSWT and fostered a sweet little Jotto in your name. Jotto is pretty cute. Have you seen him? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, he's an elephant. Yeah. Uh, thanks for brightening up my commute and satisfying my insatiable thirst for new and interesting facts. Lowell Hutchinson, parentheses, BT dubs, I'm a woman. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Lowell. Exclamation point. Well, everybody, if you want, you can go to the David Sheldrick Wildlife Trust and look up Giotto and see our adopted elephant that we're fostering <laughs> now. Thanks to Lowell. They should call it Josho. Or can you get the name changed? Maybe. <laughs> it depends on how, how much you give, I think. Probably so. Um, there's only like five elephants, so they just changed the name and right. put a different picture up. <laughs> Uh, thanks again, Lowell. And uh, Lowell didn't say where what her website is for wood turning, but if you need some wood turned, look up Lowell Hutchinson, and hopefully her site will come up. That's right. Uh, and uh, if you want to get in touch with us like Lowell did or sponsor an elephant for us, that's great too. You can get in touch with us by going on to stuffyoushouldknow.com and looking up our social links or sending us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.